Boss Brief, a strategic guide on how not to be an asshole at work. You'll learn about bad bosses, how they can be detected and handled, as well as how to tell if you happen to be one. Join an executive and an executive coach, both artists working in marketing and advertising for over two decades, who are here to offer you the ultimate guide on how to navigate any employment landscape. Here are your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief. I'm Stephanie Payrollo. And I'm Eugene S. Robinson. And today we are going to talk about the perfectionist boss. <laughs> Being a Virgo, I know all about these. <laughs> are you are you a perfectionist? Uh, uh yeah, a silent one, <laughs> which means I'm silently judging you if you fail to do things the correct way. But if you get it done and it's not the way I planned, I'm completely, I've learned to be easy about this, right? Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is is perfectionism in general, um, how to know if you are one. But then we're also going to talk about what's the difference between being a perfectionist and just having high standards, right? Because I do think that that's an interesting frame of reference. And we're going to talk about some pitfalls in looking at a systemic view of where perfectionist comes from. So jam packed 30 minutes today. Um, again, if you want to get in touch with us about today's episode or ideas for future episodes, WTF at badbossbrief.com. I will put my very own eyes on it. If you send us something WTF at badbossbrief.com. So what the F? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Badbossbrief.com. So Eugene sent me an article last week from um, CNBC by Ashton Jackson, and it was quoting Ginny Romedy, who was the which is, which is which is a great name, by the way, because it's so close to Action Jackson. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so that's why he said it to me. Okay. Ginny yeah. um, Romedy was the president and CEO of IBM. She worked at IBM for her entire career. Um, isn't there any longer? She retired, but she thought at first in the beginning of her career that being a perfectionist was a good thing. And it took her a while to realize that wasn't true. And this is a quote from Romedy. My nickname in my early career was Red Pen. I mean, you'd send anything to me and I'd send it back completely red. I used to think that was a great skill to find every mistake and improve it. Then what happened is one of her coworkers or someone who worked for her, a colleague, came to her and, and gave her some feedback. And she was told, you know, people just don't even want to try hard because you're going to change it and fix it. It's never going to be good enough, said Ramadi. She came to understand that perfectionism is the enemy of progress. So what do you think? Have you, have you had a perfectionist boss? Um, I, I've had one and, and I've been one. And, you know, what is it? There's an expression about don't let uh, great be the enemy of good. Um, and I realized at a certain point as a boss that what I needed to do was to give the people around me agency. And I'm, and this wasn't something that I became aware of when I was at Code Magazine. We had celebrity interviews of the kind that you get one shot, right? You get one shot. If you first cover was Samuel Jackson, the photographer spent 12 hours on a photo session. Every single photo was blurry. Every single one. Like the guy forgot his contacts in. We're talking eight hours of photographs, $16,000 in the shoot, every single one. Um, and the creative director at the time shows it to me. And I'm like, they're blurry. I'm looking, looking through the loop at each and every one. And she says, well, he's really experimenting with a new aesthetic. I was like, nice save, but it's not. But ultimately, we can't get Samuel Jackson back for another eight hour shoot. 
can't spend another $16,000, had to make it work. And making it work sort of was sort of kind of magical. It didn't look better than if it was in focus. However, it did seem like we were pursuing an outside, uh, 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 um, you know, an outside kind of aesthetic. So um, I started to learn that maybe it was important to actually give agency, even if the result wasn't going to make me happy. And I repeated this again, a piece I covered, piece I did on Chris Rock. And uh, I, I gave it to somebody else to edit. And he made one word change. He made a bunch of changes, but one word change that stuck in my craw and does to this day. And I, I just let it go because I, I said, good job, buddy. You really cleaned the piece up. And I let the piece be published that way privately. I'm still chagrined about it. But what I earned from that was a guy who would stay late on Friday, would show up early on Monday, who was really willing. He was he was bought in at that point because I wasn't trampling his, his, his creative input. You know, when I've had a perfection uh, boss, it made me a better, a, not only a better editor, but a better writer. And his, the way in which he was a perfection, it was at Corporate Computing Magazine. The guy's name was Clint Wilder. He would just ask me questions. Presuming that I had all of the answers, the indication being that you need to have all the answers. You don't have to put them all in the piece, but I should be able to ask you anything and you should be able to tell me. It's got to be 360 degrees. And that really helped me be a much more thorough reporter, you know. Why were the cows there? Who owned the cows? What state were the cows in? Never important in the piece, but he was like, you got to know what you're doing. You got to know what you're doing. And I, I, I really welcome that. That was really helpful perfectionism. Um, and maybe both cases were. I don't know. I'm still chagrined about the Chris Rock thing. Though. Well, and I think a lot of it, what you're talking about is the attitude, right? There's an Correct. assumption that you are dealing with a professional who has made intelligent decisions about, in this case, their word choice. I remember when I, my first journalism job out of college, I had an editor who was also masterful, right? And he would do the same thing. He'd be like, how about this? Or he'd come up with a correction. And it wasn't this like sea of red pen. It was really thoughtful, key word changes. And I learned from them, right? So it was, and also he was my editor. I was new and young at this. And, you know, and so I think, I think having a, an understanding or a cultural sense that I am teaching you, right? Because yes. it, it sounds like had, you know, and it, it had Ginny Romady done a couple of key corrections and been able yes. to maybe articulate. And I think part of it is she's going overboard, right? Because yes. like you're working, If I mean, my dad worked at IBM for you know, almost all of his career, there are smart people at IBM. If, yeah. if, he, if she's the CEO and these are people that work for her who are senior yeah. managers, they're not stupid, yeah. right? So yeah. the question is, what is her frame of reference? And yeah. if she's sending something back that's completely covered in red, that's not, that's just going to be demotivating out of the gate, right? You know, and, and what you're suggesting here at this point is, you know, the negative shadowing, the shadings of perfectionism. And I've had that as well. And it happened to me when I was at Electric Power Research Institute, where I was a tech editor. And the the guy who was the editorial director was correcting my pieces after I had edited them, but after they were published. Oh. Right. So I would edit a piece, I'd submit it, he'd look at it, probably redline the crap out of it and send it straight to the printer. So there was this like three month lag between him letting me know what he wanted done and just doing it himself. And at a certain point, it demotivated me enough. So I just stopped working. I, I completely just, I mean, you know, I would make some cursory changes and like, well, he's going to do it for me. And uh, I actually, on a parallel path, began starting my own business and was making plans to move 
And at one point it came to a head and he was like, listen, I need you. And I got I like, I think I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, there was no point in me being there. And it was, what is a uh, confirmation bias. He just assumed that a guy who had already done this for three years out of Stanford was not going to be able to handle it somehow. And he just ran off and did it himself. It was completely demotivating and I had to leave. And I've held it against him ever since. <laughs> well, I think when I was thinking about this episode, I was like, okay, what is perfectionism, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's one of those words that's kind of tossed around and it sounds mm-hmm. like it has a specific clinical meaning. What I want to talk about is this idea of perfectionism as holding people, including yourself, to an unrealistically high standard based on outside criteria imposed by the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. So it's unrealistically high. Mm-hmm. And it's it's outside criteria. It's not critical to the business success or the success of the particular enterprise that you're doing. And I think mm-hmm. what's challenging about that is that, you know, f- perfectionism is something that I, I run into it a lot with. In, I, I have it. My executive coaching clients do. A lot of really kind of high performing people have to struggle mm-hmm. with perfectionism. And where it becomes mm-hmm. difficult is we've talked about how it's difficult in the workplace, where it's difficult to carry that around Mm -hmm. is that you have unrealistically high standards over things that aren't really that important. Right. Right. So, so I remember one time when I was working in, in advertising new business and I was running pitches, which is like running a Broadway show. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was very selective about who got to speak in front of the client because Mm -hmm. I didn't want somebody to come in and, you know, be a know-it-all, be mansplaining, talk for 20 minutes so that nobody else could speak. So I was very careful about who got to speak. And, and I was talking to my boss at the time who was based in San Francisco. And I said, look, I don't want, I don't want so-and-so to be speaking. And I outlined very succinctly what was wrong with this man's public speaking abilities. Mm -hmm. And my boss on the phone just stopped for a minute. Mm -hmm. And he was like, what do you say about me when I'm not in the room? And what I responded to him was, no, no, that's not the question. The question is, what do I say to myself about me? Mm -hmm. If I'm this, if I'm this, and you know, to be fair, it was a critical part of my job, right? Mm -hmm. Just like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like if there's a, uh, somebody's putting on a a theater production and a very nice person comes on who cannot carry a tune in a bucket, that person doesn't get invited back, right? So there is there is that kind of high standard thing. But recognizing the the what I was caring for these people and saying in a particular pitch situation, I have that voice in my head all the time. And so I think one of the things that's important. About, uh, hold yeah. on, hold on. So what was the, what was the punchline? You got to finish the story. No, I mean the punchline was. I mean he did he get, did, did he go ahead and give it? He uh, no. No, 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 okay. <laughs> no. Good. I mean, and again, that was where like this was a boss who respected what I did. I was really yep. good at it. I yep. did get to be the one who made those kind of calls. And what I was saying is, here's the reason I'm making those calls, yep. you know, and and so but I think that people who are perfectionists are often very hard on themselves. And one of the things that I'll say sometimes to clients, and this is the, you know, how to if you are a perfectionist or suspect yourself of being a perfectionist, yep. be be clear about where that comes from, right? Because Ginny Romady talks about somebody gave her feedback and said it's demotivating mm-hmm. if you have this level of kind of micromanagement. Mm-hmm. And she took that on board. For some people, it's it's deeper than that. It's not just mm-hmm. a feedback thing. It's not a habit. It's an entire way of thinking. And sometimes mm-hmm. people really need to step back and do some 
you know, whether it's therapy or some sort of spiritual practice, like it can be really challenging. And so, you know, if you work for a perfectionist, try to have some compassion for that person, because believe me, whatever it is that they are putting out into the world, it's going on in their head all the time. And it's probably going on in their family. And, you know, it can be, it can be, it can be very challenging. Well, and this is a good point because the boss that I hated from the Electric Power Research Institute, um, if he, he had all the markers of somebody who was riven by anxiety, his nails were bitten down to the nubs. He had been there a long time, hadn't been any other places. Utilities in California had just been deregulated, so they become kind of a wild west. But also, it didn't make sense to put that money into you know the publication. So he he had a lot of stressors. You know, just bought a house in Palo Alto. Um, had a wife who subsequently came down with uh, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So he, the guy was under a lot of pressure. So. Right. And to be aware. And then I think the other part is it's important to understand whether it's personally or organizationally, the difference between perfectionism, which is negative, demotivating, mm-hmm. you know, overweening and, and high standards. All right. So when I, I was looking at an article, this is an old article in the Harvard Business Review, but it's by the... Um, Ed Catmull, I think that's how you say his name, C-A-T-M-U-L-L, the co-founder and former president of Pixar. Mm -hmm. And it's about having high standards. And he was talking about making Toy Story 2 and Mm -hmm. running into a problem. And again, empowering his creative team to solve it. All the kind of positive things that you want to see in a culture. But this is a quote from him. There has to be one quality bar for every film we produce. Everyone working at the studio at that time made tremendous personal sacrifices to fix Toy Story 2. We shut down all other productions. We asked our crew to work inhumane hours and lots of people suffered repetitive stress injuries. But by rejecting mediocrity at great pain and personal sacrifice, we made a loud statement as a community that it was unacceptable to produce some good films and some mediocre films. As a result of Toy Story 2, it became deeply ingrained in our culture that everything we touch needs to be excellent. Now, I'm not suggesting that you work people so hard that they get repetitive stress injuries. Mm. What I'm suggesting is understanding and inculcating in the culture a very high bar, particularly in a creative enterprise, and holding firm to that. Mm. That is positive. And that's, I think, the difference between high standards, right? So they, they set a bar. Right. When he talks about community, he means the community of people who are working there. They all agreed to work this hard. And the Toy Story franchise has been incredibly lucrative, incredibly successful. I have watched many of them with my grandchild. And that, I think, is the difference, is that this was something that came internally. It was something that Mm -hmm. the community, the group, the leadership generated and people bought into. It had a very clear business success. And it, it just makes sense. Being really good at creative work, doing something that isn't mediocre, does guarantee you success when you make films, when you write books, when you produce music albums. And I think you can't, um, if I if I have this correct, um, Pixar was a Steve Jobs uh, uh, related joint. So let's not forget the uh, jo- Steve Jobsian reality distortion field, which is to take something challenging or damn near impossible and say, we're not. We're not going to think that we can't do this and you're going to do whatever it needs to take, whatever you need to do to make it happen, you know? Right. Um, so, and and that, I think largely, he, it was right at, he, I remember at the time I was at Apple and he was starting to split his time between the Apple campus 
and the Pixar campus. So you cannot underestimate the, you know, the effect that him cruising into the parking lot at Pixar might have had. But the thing, the, the magical thing about him, and I don't say this easily, is that he had created a situation where people wanted to do it, right? So this is was super important. You ne- I never felt like both him and Andy Grove, who I worked closely with, I never felt like they were slave drivers, even, even though I worked uh, no fewer than two or three times for Andy Grove, a 24-hour day. Never, never felt like he was a slave driver. He was there with me. He was, he was, if I was not sleeping, he was not sleeping. So I think that helped in terms of having somebody who was actually inspirational. I didn't have any 24-hour days with, with jobs, but, you know, he was, uh, he was also a hard worker. And I think that that's part of what comes up in the rest of the article that I'm not quoting from is his deep respect for the people that work for him and his right. honoring their abilities and giving them agency and all of the other things that you were that were you were mentioning. And so I think it's important when you're thinking about perfectionism, it can be difficult when you have a boss who is demanding. And but I think it's important to say, is this boss a perfectionist? Are these um, kind of unnecessary exterior, not really moving things forward standards, or are they just high standards? Does this person just believe that we can do better work? I can do better work. And so I think that's something to ask yourself. Also with the the jobs thing, it should be noted. He was only gracious for the A team. (laughs) If he had determined, and this was a free floating standard. If he had determined that you were an A team member, the world was yours. If he felt, if you smelled like a B team member, it must've been hell. It must have been hell. Which, again, like, you know, having high standards, looking at what is best for the business, not everybody is going to like you. Right. And I'm yeah, not right. suggesting, again, that, that that that's. But and then there's one other point that I wanted to that I wanted to bring up about this is that, you know, I generally like to keep a frame of reference that not everything is personal. A lot of things are systemic. Sure. Right. And and there's a lot of focus in some of the business articles that drive me crazy about how we individually are responsible for our reactions. And a lot of times people who are perfectionists don't always understand that they are participating in a larger system. Right. And it's not necessarily even the system of like how they grew up or, or you know, what their cultural educational background is. A lot of it is the system in which we live. Capitalism is going to um, appreciate perfectionism and it's going to be one of the traits that happens, right? So the idea, you know, with Ginny Romney, when she's putting red notes on everything, she has a very specific idea about what good corporate language is, right? And I mean, I've read a lot of really bad corporate business speak. And somebody who wrote with perhaps a vivid metaphor or just a little bit more elevated style. Mm-hmm. she might have felt that that was not an appropriate type of language to be in a memo that was going out from IBM, right? Uh-huh. So she could have dumbed down the language because she had a very specific lens of her understanding of what good corporate communication was. And again, I have no idea, right? But she's right. probably using standard, correct, grammatical, you know, strunk and white format, that kind of thing. And I think that you have to be careful because sometimes the perfectionism with this outside idea is really just a larger explanation of like, oh, it's you have to write like all of the people who are in the dominant culture. Right. And this, and, and you're touching on a good point here because I don't think we should ever underestimate uh, a second for a second, the stressors that go along with being a woman in that position, as well as being a person of color in that position. So it's like you have to come if you do not come in with guns blazing, 
you will pretty much find yourself marginalized pretty quickly, I think. So uh, well, you, I think. Sorry, there's a there's an interesting little I'm going to just go in a little sideline here because I find this to be fascinating. So in the 90s, there was an article mm-hmm. called White Supremacy Culture. And it was written by a white woman named Tima Oakum. And she identifies perfectionism, something she calls worship of the written word, and other factors as being part of the white supremacy culture. Okay. That may have some validity. There may be, and she meant the article to be kind of something for white leaders to think about, right? How attuned do I have to be to punctuality, to certain forms of expression? But what happened was this became just really popular among Mm. white progressives, particularly white progressives who worked in the nonprofit sphere. Mm. And what ended up happening is that people took this and they came up with their own interpretation. In fact, Oaken herself created a website to supplant the original article because she found that, quote, many people are misusing this material. And that misuse seems to most often take the form of pulling out a characteristic like perfectionism, my edit in there, or using all of them as a kind of checklist to target people and accuse people of colluding with white supremacy culture. And they're doing this to leaders of color. And in fact, this, I read this in an article and it's just, I, I find it to be a fascinating article. It's, it's in a publication called The Forge. And the article is called How Not to Dismantle White Supremacy. And it's by a group of leaders, most of whom are nonprofit leaders of color, who talk about how this has been used against them. When they are saying, okay, in our organization, we want people to have metrics. <gasps> metrics and, and measurement is part of white supremacy culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and really coming for leaders of color. And one of the comments that I thought was interesting is, and, and the things that they get critiqued for using metrics, having mm. deadlines, even wanting people to be punctual. Those leaders of color who are asking for those sort of like basic business standard operating procedure are accused of participating in white supremacy, sometimes by white people who are working for the person of color. (laughs) Uh, What a topsy-turvy, crazy world we live in. Well, and I think, and one of the things that I'm going to quote Scott Nakagawa, who is one of the contributors to this article, which was a discussion, which I think is, is kind of sums it up really effectively for perfectionism versus high standards. He says, when I was looking at that article again, um, what it made me think of was, what if you were evaluating surgeons? Would you not want that person to be a perfectionist who's rigorous in their study, who's constantly learning and making themselves better and better all the time, who's read every handbook on the subject of your illness, and who's going to be on time in the surgical theater? Yeah. Right. Which, which I think is a great, is a great way to end this kind of segment that be intentional about looking at perfectionism. What is the lens? What's the frame, but don't veer so far that you, especially if you're a white person, just, just don't talk about Just be careful. Don't do that. It's not even, it's not even that. I mean, I remember it was very popular at a certain point to, demotivate young black folks. Um, and this came not from the outside community, except maybe in a very general way, but from inside the community where somebody who was, you know, uh, evincing qualities of, of upward mobility, like studying, you know, getting good grades was be- acting white, 
And so it became this weird social pressure where you weren't succeeding in high school unless you were failing because it showed, I mean, this is born of, of you know, kind of 60s nationalism where, you know, black nationalism where you were, you were not, you were not kowtowing to the man. You were, you know, two plus two equals four, screw you. <laughs> you know, and I think it did, you know, it, of course, hopping on board with somebody like Jesse Jackson, I think it did a great disservice to the, to the black community. You know, I mean, um, I, yeah, this is a long, much longer kind of weird discussion about, you know, the late 70s, early 80s discussion about Ebonics and get, trying to get that codified as a real figure of speech. You know, and people and I had experience with this as well. People said, why, why do you sound white? And I go, I sound like my mother who sounds like my father, who sounds like my grandmother, who sounds like my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather. And I, I come from a long line of people who sound exactly like I do. You know, middle class and upper middle class black folks. That's what we sound like. Get used to it, you know. But then there was this whole thing about keeping it real in the 60s and going natural and being the, you know, I think it's done a great disservice. Yeah, I mean, you know, black folks now own the franchise for funky. You want to show that a white character is cool and kind of funky? Give him a black friend. We own that franchise. But, you know, I, I'd much rather have a, a seat at the big table, uh, you know, as a VP or a president of something or other without having to uh, carry the burden of, you know, naturalness and failure. Uh, it's strange to me. But do you do you have a fire me? I do. I do. Um it, it, it came courtesy of uh, I maybe the Atlantic, maybe not. I can't remember the publication. That's not the issue. It, it was talking about the new generation, our present 2023 generation of, uh, it, well, it's I'll use their words, robber barons. So it does a comparative study between Andrew Carnegie, Rockefeller, and uh, 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 one other guy, not Ford, but the, whoever it was who was Standard Oil. And then does, you know, compares them to Peter Thiel, Bezos and Musk. And they make it. Uh, and we could also include Benioff from Salesforce. And that largely that these cats, these people, these these men, you, you know, the, the, the previous generation, the early generation of industrialists and robber barons had this idea that at least whether it was motivated by guilt, largesse or a desire to show out that they had to do something that was directly beneficial to the society at large. In addition to socking away all that cash, you know, there's Carnegie Hall, there's the Ford Foundation, there's the, you know, they actually built, uh, you know, Rockefeller Center. They, they built, these weren't tributes to themselves necessarily. These were, you know, I mean, anybody who gets booked in Carnegie Hall is pretty happy to be at Carnegie Hall. It becomes a standard by which we can raise all the boats compared to Peter Thiel, whose claim to fame is, you know, Palantir, which is, you know, analyzing global threats or his efforts in politics to, you know, uh, increase the fortunes of Donald Trump or his thing to live forever. Musk and Be oh, Bezos was the other one where these are tributes to self. <laughs> no, it's like the guy who runs it and goes, look at this fantastic thing that I did. I did. Look, you know, these are these are monuments to 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 their ego. And he doesn't. The guy is trying not to be especially judgmental. He's just trying to call it the way he sees it. Of course, there, you know, there's probably a little bit of judge, judgment in there, but I found it to be completely compelling and a quick study. And it gave me great delight to use Musk mega, megaphone, you know, Twitter, which I refuse to call it X. So I'm going to call it Twitter um, and, and, and tweet that out because I, on the hopes that maybe somehow maybe he'll, he'll actually read this. If you've got 
more money, you know, than many nations combined. And the best you can come up with is like hanging out with Dave Chappelle and like dressed up as Iron Man. And, you know, somehow you've lost the plot. So um, I, I would, you know, apparently Zuckerberg's haircut is influenced by uh, Augustus Caesar. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Who knew that people this crazy were in our midst? <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you also have to, but you also have to look at like where, where, where was Musk this week? He was in Israel meeting with Netanyahu. He opened up his, you know, satellite links to his magical satellite network um, to Israel. And that's because his reaction to a, you know, his anti-Semitic tweets. But the problem (laughs) is, it's like these, if these guys were just focusing on their haircuts or whatever deathmatch they were going to do or whatever, like kind of, and again, their understanding of reality is very, it's different than you and I, right? They, they make stuff up. It is fungible in a way that it isn't for those of us that are not robber baron rich. But the problem is, I imagine Netanyahu has a pretty busy schedule right now. I imagine he has a few things on his calendar and he cleared space to go and talk to Musk. And I think that's what's challenging is it's like, if you look at these guys as buffoons who are just haircuts, who are just narcissists, who are building these monuments to themselves, I think you underestimate the amount of power these men have and what they can do with that power. They talked about that with the whole, uh, you know, pretty much following the trail of murder and despair via Facebook. They they did touch on that, you know, Um, as well as the fact that many people who worked at Facebook knew that this was the case. They knew what they were doing was dangerous and was going to have a deleterious effect on the society at large. And they did it anyway. So, you know, it's it's the new California, you know, kind of new California tech ethos combined with incredible, crazy amounts of cash and power. And I don't think in a, in a labor perspective, it will have a, an overtly positive outcome. Um, well, and, and the question, too, is like, how do you stop them? Right. I mean, is it is it government influence? It's certainly not going to be society. People are not going to suddenly say, wow, this is terrible for us and our children. We should stop using these social media. I mean, I think, we can all think, step away from social media yep. at any point and, yep. and undercut the engine of these men's power and growth. But nobody wants to do that. Yeah. Well, I think shame and cash. I mean, he's over meeting with Netanyahu as, a, as, a, as the nexus of shame and cash. I imagine very little shame, but a lot of cash, uh, um, which he lost when he lost all his major accounts, who at this point, you know, I don't know what they're going to need to get back, but I don't think he has it in him to give them what they need to get back. So, yeah, and not in a sustainable yeah. way. He'll do it. You no. know, he'll do it. He'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah, cover. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for. Um, Again, do you have any uh, thoughts about this episode or ideas for future episodes? WTF at badbossbrief.com. Thanks. Talk soon. Adios. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Bad Boss Brief podcast with your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. You can check out more of their work by visiting consigliera.substack.com for Stephanie and eugenesrobinson.substack.com for Eugene. You can also find Eugene at Mr. Sleep 3, that's number 3, on Instagram. Reach out with your questions, concerns, workcase situations, or suggestions to us at WTF at badbossgrief.com. We personally answer every submission. 
Be sure to join us at badbossbrief.substack.com every other Wednesday for episodes of Bad Boss Brief and every single week for our Sub Rosa shorts so you can gain further insights into your workplace environments. Until next time, don't be an asshole at work.